So friend, I wonder, where do you go when the bottom just falls out? Where do you turn when it feels like your life is turning to ash? I'm not just raising those questions hypothetically. I mean those to be real questions because for many of us, those are just real life situations we believe we're in, right? We're living in hard times. I don't need to tell most of you that. Economically, you feel it, right? We're living in the midst of unprecedented unemployment numbers and recession numbers. Physically, I mean, people can joke how like the COVID-15 has become the COVID-30. People are talking about it's all the bread they're baking in their homes, whatever. And yet at the same time, you read the reports and homicides and suicides are rising also at record levels. We're told mental health clinics are on the brink of collapse. Turn on the news and what do we see but images of riots and then you've got political pundits yelling at one another and screaming one another down all the while cities burn in the background. Economically, physically, mentally, politically, Ryan was even praying about that just a moment ago, but even spiritually, it's been a hard time. People are struggling you know, the inability to gather normally. I mean, this is far more normal than many people get to gather around the globe, even hearing from the Abrahams early. So many others haven't met. I think this may be the first Sunday morning that Risen Christ Fellowship is meeting. Right? Many haven't been able to meet. And in such rhythms, and the lack of them really, people are struggling. They're having a difficult time. And many are predicting many that went to some of those churches will never come back to church. Friends, in short, we live in a society that is gripped by anxiety, by uncertainty, by fear. And to one degree or another, we all feel it and we're all experiencing it. So friend, where do you turn in such turbulent times? What hope this morning are you holding on to? Is it a November election result? Is it the promise of a vaccination? Friend, is that the solution you seek? Is that the deliverance you think you must have? Because I would ask you, friend, is that enough? Will that be enough? Well, friend, to help us think about these things, because I want us to be thinking about these things from our text this morning. And I want us to be turning again in our Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 29 and 30 this morning. 1 Samuel 29 through 30. And if you've been following along in this study, you know we're right near the end of the book. Things are kind of coming together, but not necessarily in the most hopeful way, right? Because to put it mildly, things aren't looking so good as we come to the close of the book, right? When it comes to Saul, we saw last week how the Philistines are massing for war as his own kingdom is crumbling to ruins. And then there's David. Remember David who fled to Philistia for refuge and he escaped Saul? But while he escaped Saul, he only finds himself now conscripted into the Philistine army, So the one, David, who's supposed to be Israel's savior, is about to become Israel's traitor. And so we concluded last week, you've got two different men gripped in their own ways by anxiety and by uncertainty and by fears as both of these men face the greatest challenges in their life. And what was Saul's solution last week? In all of his infinite wisdom, Saul, he he approaches a witch at Endor. That's Saul's solution. He sought wisdom from a witch. But friend, what is David going to do? What about David? Where does he turn 
And how does David's response help us think about our own response in times of great uncertainty and fear and anxiety? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about in chapters 29 through 30. Again, I invite you to turn there, 1 Samuel 29 to 30. And I think these two chapters in David's life offer us sort of three lessons Three lessons about how we can think through our own sets of anxieties and fears. And friends, the first lesson is this. The first lesson is this. Be comforted by the providence of God. The first lesson we're going to see is that we ought to be comforted by the providence of God. Now recall last week... David was conscripted again into the Philistine army, and he's serving as Achish's bodyguard. And the the camera is going to turn in chapter 29 back to David as the Philistines are gathering for this war. And 29, chapter 29, verse 1, tells us that the Philistines had gathered all of their forces at Aphek. And in verse 2, we learn that the Philistines are now passing by on the hundreds and the thousands, and we read that David's men are pulling up the rear. So just recognize right here, David marching with the Philistine forces, he is caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Surrounded by the Philistine army, David literally has nowhere to run. There's no place to go. Humanly speaking, he is in an impossible situation. But friend, let's just stop for a moment and remember, how did David get here? How did David get here to where he's marching with the Philistine army in chapter 29? Well, remember back in chapter 27, in the midst of Saul's persecution, David got tired of waiting on God's deliverance. And so he started to work out his own deliverance. In other words, we could say David sought temporal salvation with the Philistines And yet he was attempting to keep up his sort of eternal salvation with God. So David is paying lip service to God, and yet he's simultaneously fleeing as well to the Philistines. But I think you can say in short, we're catching David living a bit of a double life. You know that expression, a double life. You know, like the the student who wants to hold themselves out as a Christian And yet they deeply covet the popularity and the applause of their friends. And so they try to ingratiate themselves with their friends and they want to keep up with the in crowd, even if it means they have to sometimes walk away from Jesus. Or like the one who longs for financial security. And so this person works religiously to amass a sizable account, right, a comfortable savings account, even if it means they have to hoard their own money. Or like the one who wants to drink deeply from from the well of of pleasure. But friends, whether it is pleasure or popularity or earthly security, these same people, they also want eternity in heaven, right? They don't want to give that up. They want both. They want both. And so despite how they may live Monday through Saturday, right, they show up at church on most Sundays and they pay their respects to God and they try to cover their bases with Jesus on Sunday. They want a foot in both worlds. And friend, if that's you this morning, I just want you to take a look at where David finds himself and ask yourself whether or not that life is going to end well for you. David has put himself in this situation. 
And it is a situation leading toward what looks to be certain disaster. Because we saw, right, last week, as James reminded us, that everyone who wishes to be a friend of the world will become an enemy of God, James 4.4. So you can try to keep a foot in both worlds, but in the end it will catch up with you, and it's catching up with David right here. And yet, just as David and his men are passing by the Philistine commanders, we read in verse 3 that those commanders say, what are these Hebrews doing here? And then in verse 3, Achish is interestingly going to defend David. Kind of ironic, a Philistine defending a Hebrew, but defending him saying, I have found no fault in him. And yet we read chapter 29, verse 4, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David? of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. All right, stop right there. The military brass, right, in Philistia, they're going to have none of it, none of Achish's plan to have David march with the soldiers. Now, the irony is that back in 28.2, we read that Achish made David his bodyguard, and that word bodyguard literally means guard of my head. So a Philistine commander is making David who has a bit of a reputation for Philistine heads. Remember Goliath? He's making David the defender of his own head. And yet the commanders are saying, now listen, Achish, you may have forgot our nation's history, but they've got a dance move about what happened to Goliath. And it's at our expense. And you can trust your head to this guy, but we're not trusting ours. That's effectively what they say. And so, in verse 7, we read that David... What is to, quote, go back now, to go back to Ziklag and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And with that, it looks like David in just a few verses has miraculously been delivered from this impossible pickle he found himself in, which is what makes his response in verse 8 so surprising if you read it this week. Right, 29, 8, David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Now we're thinking, David, wait, time out, stop. Why are you protesting? They've just given you your out, like your get out of Dodge, get out of jail free card. It is right there. Stop arguing about it. Stop protesting. Just go. Now I think there are two ways we can understand David's response. Either he's responding as he is in verse 8 because, well, he's really only pretending to be disappointed. You know, internally he's relieved, but he can't show too much of that relief lest, right, he sort of blow his cover, and so he feigns disappointment and only sort of puts up a show. That's one option. Or another option is it could be David actually really does want to fight because his plan while he's marching along, is that some way in the midst of battle, he is going to turn and fight now with the Israelites against the Philistines. But friend, either way you read it, here's the thing. 
What's happening here is not just David's lucky break. This is not the stars looking favorably upon David or or fortune favoring the brave. No, this is God mercifully and providentially saving David from his own stupidity. That's exactly what has happened. God mercifully and providentially saving David from his own stupidity. Because friends, notice, remember, David doesn't know what we know from chapter 28. We know from last week that this battle that is about to happen, remember where they're gathering in Aphek, you know, early on in the chapter, what is that, verse, verse one? Aphek, if that rings at all a bell, 1 Samuel 4, that's when they gather again in that historic route of Hophni and Phinehas twice with Israel, and remember, they die and Eli dies, right? So when you read Aphek and the Philistines are gathering, that's not a good omen for Israel. But David doesn't know what we know, that Israel is about to get trounced in this battle that's to come. David is not aware of that. So this is God saving David from David. This is God preserving his child. It's his providence at work. It's keeping David some 60 miles from the battlefield so that not only does David escape the danger of battle, but he escapes any blame that he could have contributed to Saul's death in battle, or that in any way David is in part responsible for losing the battle. You see, God is in fact in this act protecting David's reputation, though David has no idea what's happening. And so right here you have God turning the hearts of kings like a stream, like like a channel of water in his hand, because that's what God does. Make no mistake, David's deliverance here has nothing to do with his savvy, but it has everything to do with Yahweh's mercy, with his mercy to him. Right, David is not saved by his own ingenious wit. No, it is God's infinite wisdom that saves David in this situation. It's not his crafty cunning, but it is God's compassionate care expressed toward David. Christian, is this not how God deals with you too? Is this not how he deals with us? How often does God protect us from ourselves in spite of ourselves? Do you know that testimony in your own life? Do you have to think very hard to think of where God has saved you from you? Do you ever stop to think of where your life would be if it were not for the million seemingly negligible and inconsequential ways that God has protected you from you? You know, it's interesting to note in a text like this that has so much to do with God's providential mercy and yet explicitly says nothing about it. So often, friends, it is the same way in our own lives. Whether or not we see it, and whether or not we ever testify to it, it is there. God, providentially, his mercy there, whether it's a a flashing billboard, or whether it's a flickering glimmer, whether it is in a whisper or in an obvious whirlwind, God is doing what God does in our lives as well, providentially delivering his people. Through all the ups and downs, 
amidst all the twists and turns. He is there, often quietly, sometimes imperceptibly. He is nonetheless guiding his people. I think what's so beautiful and what is so comforting about a text like this is that we see God clearly pursuing David in the midst of David's own pride. David's pride and his fears are what led him to seek sanctuary in Philistia. But friend, God didn't abandon David to that choice. No, his mercy pursues David all the way to Philistia because God's mercy is inexhaustible. And friends, inexhaustible mercy does not dry up easily. Now that doesn't mean God will always rescue us from our own foolishness. If we box ourselves into a corner thinking we're clever, there's no promise that he's gonna every time do for us what he did for David here. But the point, I think, of our passage is to help us see that there, there is no bind too great for God. God never finds himself in some fit and he doesn't know how to fix it. Or he doesn't find himself so deep in the mud and the muck of our own mess that he doesn't know how to get us out of it. He is God and there is no situation that is too great for him, which is why as his children we can trust him. And a passage like this should breed trust in our own hearts. For notice... Notice who God uses to rescue his servant. He uses Philistine warlords. That's who rescues David out of this passage, and the only one to proclaim the Lord's name is actually Achish. But friends, such is the providence of God that he can even turn his enemies into his own people's saviors. Oh, my Christian friend, let the wonder of God's providential ways, let that lead you to praise. Friend, let that be your comfort this morning. But not only should we comfort, I think, by the providence of God, I think there's a next lesson as we keep moving that we see, and the second lesson is this. We should be strengthened by the promises of God. Be strengthened by the promises of God. Because no sooner has David left the Philistine camp that we go on to read in chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And then we go on to read in verse 4, that in response to this, David and the people who were with him, they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Friend, talking about jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire, it's right here. Now we read gratefully that nobody was killed, and yet that gratefulness quickly subsides when you think the only reason you don't kill them is if you plan to sell them. And that's what David's wives and children and all of their families are destined for. And notice David's family is not just, is rather his, uh, his sorrow, his distress, his suffering, is not just that he lost his home and his family, but we read in verse 6 that David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. 
So notice now in David's life, it's not just that Saul's after his life. Now his own people are searching for stones to do the same to him. You know, interestingly, that expression, greatly distressed, that you read, that expression of being greatly distressed, that's the same expression Saul used last chapter or last week, chapter 28, verse 15, right? When the witch summons Samuel, Saul says to Samuel, I am greatly distressed for the Philistines are warring against me. God won't answer me, etc., etc." There's a parallel right there. And chronologically, chapter 28 and chapter 30 are happening at about the same time. So catch what's happening. At the time when Saul was in the midst of his greatest trial, the greatest trial of his own life, here is David in chapter 30, similarly facing perhaps the greatest trial of his own life, both saying they're greatly distressed, and notice that both men are hearing rumors of what? Well, they're hearing rumors of their own death of their own demise. Now Samuel is prophesying Saul's, but David's men, they're plotting for his. And yet here is the crucial difference. Whereas Saul rejected God, what do we read in verse six? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Friends, I think this is the central verse of the passage. Everything turns on what happens in verse six, right here. David's future, spiritually, even physically, it it hinges on what happens in verse six. And I think right in verse six, we have the crucial difference between Saul and between David. Because recognize in chapter 27, David seeks salvation by fleeing to the Philistines. Chapter 28, Saul seeks salvation by conjuring up a seer. Now, David in chapter 29 is going to be saved from the Philistines. Whereas in chapter 31, we're going to see Saul is destroyed by them. So what's the difference? David is saved, and yet Saul is destroyed. One saved, one lost. Well, friend, it's not. You would get the wrong idea if you thought the reason was that David was more virtuous or wiser or a significantly better leader. Those are not the differences. The vital difference is verse six. David had a genuine relationship with God. So as David seeks strength from the Lord, Saul sought strength from a spiritist. One looks to the Lord alone for life. The other occasionally uses the Lord to better his life. So when the world is closing in and crashing down around David, when all were turning upon him, David turned to the one person that he knew could help him. Friend, what about you? When you face situations, hopefully not nearly as bad as this, but when you face such situations where it feels like the walls are crumbling in about you, where do you go? What do you do? What's your response? You know, they talk about sort of weeping in the evening and joy in the morning, and then it's like disaster hits in the afternoon, right? What do you do? Well, I know my temptation. It might be, maybe like yours, maybe it's, you know, I'm going to throw a pity party 
You know, my situation's pretty bad. It's bad, it's worse than a lot of people around me. Or maybe your temptation is, is to become bitter over your circumstances. To complain, you know, it, it's not fair, and maybe even in some way think of yourself as the victim in all your circumstances. But friend, I just want you to see David doesn't do any of that. Those aren't his responses. They're not often like our own responses. David doesn't stew in self-pity. He doesn't play the victim card. He doesn't complain about all those microaggressions he's suffering. He doesn't call for safe spaces in Philistia. Right? That's not what he does. He doesn't also go to a witch for wisdom. David's not after a quick fix to his problem like Saul. David, he's not after some gospel magic. He's not treating God like some lucky rabbit's foot. He's not treating God like a spiritual version of a four-leaf clover, that one you sort of turn to, right, when times are hard. He's not the genie you rub when you need to feel better. That's not how David treats God. And notice, David isn't merely lamenting. Because we can cry tears all we want, we can vent emotions, and we cannot be strengthening ourselves in God while we do that. But for David, it is about a relationship with God, even before being rescued from God. Right here is the crucial difference between David and between Saul. My friends, realize Saying you want to be saved and saying you want a savior are in fact two very different things. Saul wanted to be saved. Listen, we all want to be saved from our circumstances, but Saul wasn't finally interested in having a savior. He still wanted to run his own life. He didn't want a lord over his life. He wasn't interested in that. Could that describe you this morning? Recognize it's very possible the Amalekite raid was in response to David's own raids back in chapter 27. It's possible this raid was in fact retribution against David. In which case, at this point, David may be realizing this is where self-reliance gets me. And so he abandoned his quest at self-salvation. Like Moses, David at this point looks to the Lord alone and he just cries out, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Or even Psalm 28, verse 7, right, that Ed Ray read earlier in the service. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Augustus Topoli died this past week. If you're wondering, we haven't sung that song in a couple years. Well, that was kind of an honor of him and it's a great song. Psalm 33:20. our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Or Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Friends, that is just the cry of a Christian, and it's all throughout the Bible. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. That is what the Christian cries in trouble, and God delivers. 
Because notice this God was personal to David. Even if you're paying attention to those pronouns, my, my, a personal God. He was just not the Lord, the creator. He was not the Lord, the covenant maker alone. No, this was verse six, the Lord, his, his God. You know, for, for David, God wasn't merely to be confessed. God was to be known. David didn't believe in a covenant as an abstract set of principles. David believed deeply in a person, in this God. So David, notice, he can no longer say my house. He can't say my city. David can't talk of my possessions. That had all been taken away. But though he had lost everything else, he could still say my God, my God. If all you have is a creed, it will be of little comfort. Now, friends, that's not to say we're not creedal people. Baptists have historically been the most creedal of all people. But it is to say that true propositional faith is always personal faith, deeply personal faith. And notice how was David strengthened in his personal faith? How did that happen in verse 6 when all was lost? And when arms were literally being raised against him to stone him, where did his comfort come from? I want you to see three things. God's promises, God's presence, and God's people. They came from all three. That's where his comfort came. First, God's promises. David strengthened himself with the promises of God. And if you're wondering, okay, that makes sense kind of logically. Help me see it. Well, think back to chapter 23. Remember when Saul was hunting down David, right? Hunting him down like a dog. And remember Jonathan snuck out to find David and to encourage him in chapter 23. And in verse 23, 16, we read that David, Jonathan went to David in order to strengthen his hand in God. So very much the same language we're seeing here. And how did Jonathan do that? But by reminding David of the promises of God. That's how he strengthened his hand in God. Or John was saying, you will be king. God has promised to give you the kingdom, and our God is not in the habit of breaking any promises. My Christian friend, the more you fill your minds with a vision of God, And the more you fill your mouths with the promises of God, fear will turn to faith and pain will turn to praise. It's what happens. You know, Andrew Bonar was a a Scottish pastor, lived in the 19th century. And one morning he was reading and meditating, of all verses, Nahum 1-7, which Troglin, I think you actually quoted in the call to worship, which I wasn't expecting. I don't plan absolutely everything in the service, just to be clear. Many things, not everything. Yeah, but he was meditating on Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, quoting from the CSB. And it was but later that day that Andrew Bonar lost his dearly beloved wife. And he remarked in his journal, little did I think how I would need those promises But half an hour later, friend, it were those promises, like in Nahum 1-7, that Andrew clung to in his own pain. And year after year, on the anniversary of of her death, he would return to those same promises and hold fast to those promises to deliver him through that pain. 
we need the strengthening power of God's promises. But notice he also found comfort in God's presence. He found it in God's presence too in the Old Testament. You know, God's presence was often mediated through priests. And note, part of what David does to strengthen himself is he calls the priest in verse seven, he calls the priest Abiathar to him. And yet, friend, we have to recognize on the other side of the cross, we have so much more than a high priest like Abiathar. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us what? Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Okay, great. Therefore, the author says, therefore, let us what? Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Receive mercy, find grace. Friends, that's what God's presence brings. That's what David experienced. You know, if you've come this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't identify as a Christian, but you hear you were invited or curious, maybe you're thinking like, are they gonna wear masks? I don't know why you may have come. But if you're here, recognize you can only truly experience the presence of God through Jesus Christ. There really is no other way, not the gracious presence of God. God will always be present, but we can only know him as David knew him through the promises of the gospel held out to us in Christ. Because every single one of us has gone our own way, much like David. We fled, we pursue our own lives, which is to say we simply sin against God. And that sin has earned our condemnation before God. But in his wonderful grace, grace we've been thinking of this morning, God in love sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for sinners. And then he rose from the grave victorious over sin or death so that all those who would see that they have actually sinned against this God in a very personal and deep way can be reconciled to him and can know the power of his presence in their life. That comes through Jesus and his death and resurrection, repentance and faith in him. If you have questions about that, you're visiting, you're an unbeliever, you know, you're a non-Christian, you just wanna learn more, love to chat with you. You have people kind of milling about after the service, many outside, talk to any of us, reach out to the church. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to know God's presence through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But Christian, recognize too that the promises of God and the presence of God are important, but part of what strengthens David, it's the people of God. So how did David know how to strengthen himself in this situation? Because Jonathan, back in 23.16, had already strengthened him, right? Jonathan had taught him what to do, which is just another reminder, if we need one in this season, that we do, as Christians, need one another. You know, Christianity has never been a solo sport. The Tour de France is coming soon. I hope it also doesn't get canceled again or delayed. It's about two months late. I pray it's gonna happen. I think I can say pray. Yeah, it's a good thing. I want it to happen. And the best writer in the world is likely a Colombian, a guy named Egon Bernal. But friend, no writer, no writer can receive the crown without a good team. 
the Tour de France is simply too long and it is too hard. And if you go out solo, you always burn up and die and you don't make it. You don't win. You only have a chance of winning if you've got a team around you. And the Christian life is no different. We need one another. It's why gatherings like this are so important. God designed us to be in this weekly rhythm of corporate worship. It is, in fact, by him hardwired into us. And so we deceive ourselves if we think we can run this race without it. We think we may be able to, but weeks will pass, months will pass, maybe years will pass. And we may think we're doing okay, but everyone around us knows better. They know different, and it's not pretty. But not only do we need gatherings like this, friend, we need daily discipling. We need to be in one another's lives, especially in times like this when we can't gather as normally and other gatherings are canceled. We need these kind of one-on-one involvements because we can still socially distance with one another one-on-one and do one another spiritual good. We can do that just as Jonathan had done with David. Friend, if you're intimidated by that, you don't know exactly what it looks like to gather with someone intentionally to do them spiritual good. That just sounds like something out of your league. Well, I would first encourage you, listen to the corporate ABF from this morning where Hannah and Michael talk about doing that and talk about Christians who've never done it before doing it with one another. But then also come back two weeks from now. We're going to have a corporate ABF, August 30th here. Trey is going to tell you everything you need to know about discipling. There it is. Friends, both David and Saul were sinners. The difference between the two is that Saul thought little of God, which meant his life was ruled by his own circumstances. Whereas David continued to turn to God and strengthen himself in God. Now, Christians aren't perfect people, but what defines a Christian is their persevering attachment to Christ, right? They don't give up. They hold on. It's not look at the sin in my life and now despair. It is look at the Lord of my life. Look what he does, and there's hope. And this is what we see. David rises. He inquires of Abiathar in verse 7. And just as David strengthened himself in the Lord as God, so he, notice, promptly obeys the voice of his God. Because all who genuinely strengthen themselves in God will always obey the voice of God. Now David, notice, he doesn't know who sacked the city. We're told. He's not told. He doesn't know who carried off the women and children into captivity. He doesn't know exactly where to go himself. And notice God doesn't tell him. He only says, pursue, verse 8. For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And friend, that's just like the Christian life. God rarely gives us all of the answers. He rather calls us to step out in faith knowing that he is the one with all the answers. For in the words of Corey Ten Boom, we can always trust an unknown future to a known God. And that's exactly what David does. But lastly, yeah, we're to be comforted by the providence of God. We're to be strengthened by the, provid- uh, by the promises of God. But thirdly, we are to be amazed by the provision of God. Thirdly, be amazed by the provision of God. Because we see in the rest of chapter 30 that David, still with 600 men, they travel after traveling already nearly 60 miles from the Philistine front lines to Ziklag, 
Right now, they keep going after these pursuers wherever they're going, but 200 of them, we're going to read in verse 10, they're so exhausted they can't go any further. Now there are only 400 left. And who do these 400 stumble upon in the desert but a discarded Egyptian slave from the Amalekite raiding party? Do you think that might have been the providence of God at work? I'm not going to tell you who they were or where they went, but I will give you someone who will tell you. And you know, Amalekites, they're nomadic people. This is what we often miss. So I recognize there's just no city on a map David can go to and say, oh, of course they're there. Without this Egyptian, they're lost. But once again, we're seeing how God can turn Israel's enemies even into her saviors, and this Egyptian man becomes something like that, because through him they find the Amalekite raiding party in verse 16, and they attack them, and then in verse 18 we read, chapter 30, verse 18, David recovered, it's actually the same word in verse 8, rescue, you could read it, David rescued all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives, nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Friends, just stopping right there, only our God can turn the catastrophe just a few verses before into this celebration. I don't think he can do that. For notice, not only does David recover everything, verse 18, right? Nothing was missing, verse 19. But notice in verse 20, all the spoil from their other raids, he captures that too. So get now, they are even richer than they were before. Friend, do you think God is ever similarly at work in your life like this? You know, it can seem callous in the midst of great pain, to sort of blissfully remark, you know, Romans 8, you know God works all things for good for those who trust him. And that, in the moment of great pain, when it's still sharp and fresh, that may not be the wisest thing to say in that moment. And yet, deep down, we need to know that this God is in the business of bringing triumph out of tragedy. It's not just what God occasionally does. This is God's specialty. Like, this is his crossover move. He does it all the time, and he fakes everyone out every time he does it. Friends, is that not what the cross is about? When the greatest tragedy in the history of the world, the only sinless man ever to live, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified by sinners And yet it would be right there on the cross where the one crucified by sinners was in fact in that moment, though no one understood it, becoming the champion of sinners. The greatest act of injustice in the world was satisfying God's infinite justice so that if we trusted in him, we would never have to. And friends, what a glorious picture of salvation are right here in these verses For notice, not only does God restore all that was theirs, right? He gives them back their family and their goods, but he blesses them with more, right? With all of the spoil, they get even more with this God. And friends, it's the same way with us in our salvation. God doesn't 
treat us, throwing us back to the Garden of Eden just as if we had never sinned. He doesn't sort of bring our account back to zero and take away the debts. He gives us the infinite credit of Christ's righteousness, bestows and blesses us with everything, clothed in riches beyond measure because that's who God is. He is just a gracious guy. It's who he is by nature. But notice, and we always see this, think of the parable of the labors in the vineyard, right? Not everyone is happy with this graciousness. We read in verse 22 that the 400 who fought were upset with the 200 who were too exhausted to fight, and those 400, I think it calls, yeah, calls them worthless and wicked fellows, right? Worthless and wicked fellows. Well, he, they say they don't deserve the spoil in verse 22. And you know what? We can understand that. Like, they went out there, they're the ones returning bloodied and scarred from battle, and these other guys were just back with the baggage. Not exactly fair, they get to share it all with us. And we might think again the same, but David's response is telling, verse 23. David says, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Now notice in that response, verse 23, that is not merely David being magnanimous. You know, oh, he's being kingly when he does something like that. This is David actually fighting for God's character. This is David fighting for the very essence of the gospel. This right here is finally a battle, notice, between a theology of works and a theology of grace. That's what's at stake. Because the fighting men think, you know what, hey, it's my accomplishments my hand, my hard-won effort that won this spoil. And yet, they never bothered to look. They never bothered to look up to the hills and wonder, where did my help come from? They're not asking that question. But David understands this victory is what the Lord has done. It was his battle, his victory, and so the Lord gets all the glory. It's the difference between works and between grace. One leads to a damning pride in self, where the other, a delightful pleasure in God. Friend, what about you? Do you attribute your success to your own genius? Do you attribute your spiritual maturity to all of your hard-won effort? You know, silent and secretly, we love to pat ourselves on the back. But anything you have this morning says far more about God's grace and his good gifts than it does about your genius. For what do you have, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And so the chapter ends, verses 26 to 31 and what do we see but David sharing his spoil across many of the southern towns of Judah? And many might look at this. You know, I came here from Washington, D.C. What's happening? David is rewarding his political allies. That's what you do in Washington, right? They were the ones who hid him when Saul was often looking for him. So he's rewarding them for their efforts and maybe even trying to build a bit of a coalition for when he becomes king. But friends, I think it's more than David merely politically posturing. Back in chapter 8, remember Samuel 
when they went down this whole way of a king, Samuel warned them and said, the king you will ask for yourself will take, take, take. And that's exactly what Saul has done. But here, we're seeing a different shepherd king. We're seeing one who gives to those who never fought in battle, to those who never even lifted a finger, to those who are sitting by the baggage. This king gives generously to all. David is preparing us for a different kind of servant king, one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One who would not just open up his fortune, but literally open up his flesh for us. The only one who can turn tragedy to triumph. So friends, I want to ask you again, in the midst of life's uncertainties and life's anxieties and fears, do you think the November election is the solution you most need? A vaccine even this morning? Is that where your final hope rests? Only this God can save you. Only this God can deliver you. So be comforted by his providence. Be strengthened by his promises. And be amazed at his provision. Will you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise. When a chapter like this that contains it contains anecdotes, episodes, just story after story, story full of what men are doing. The actions of men are all over these two chapters. And yet we, as we stare at it, don't miss for a second that you are the real actor in the story. You are the one accomplishing your good purposes. And you are a gracious God and a sovereign God. And we praise you for it. Amen.